Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, I'm Dr. Maggie Perry. This is Tell Me What You're Proud Of. I'm here with Dr. Reed Wilson, and we are discussing the first case of this podcast. This is our client, Sophie. And so Sophie has so helpfully described her experience with OCD. In this episode, we'll be discussing the things that she's doing well to get better and where there's room for improvement. So first, we'll just go over some of the things that she was talking about that went really well in the first two episodes. And I'm wondering... Uh, Reed, do you want to start with what you you saw her doing well? Sure. I wrote a few notes after watching it. You know, first off, the whole principle of it's okay that this thought's here, it's okay that I'm having these feelings and urges. That's great that she's doing that. She also talks about surrendering, and, and I think you clarified that pretty well with her regarding surrendering means, you know, I'm going to have these they're just going to show up. They're going to come in. And I think that stuff, you know, to have that point of view as opposed to, oh, no, there they are again. I mean, she may also think that too, but I think that part of surrendering is good. And then I really like her hard and fast rules around her exposures. I work on that lots with people. I feel like that's what they need to be doing as they're planning this kind of stuff so that they, as I would say, lock it down. You know, I think about the sessions that we have with people that that's when we create a strategy. That's when we look at what we need to accomplish here. And then when they're in the scene, they just need to be the worker bee and follow the rules that they have as opposed to challenging them or taking in new data and thinking this rule is not the right way to go. If we don't lock down those rules, we're going to analyze in the moment in such a way that we're going to want to back away and do some of our rituals. So all of that, I think, are, are great things that she's doing. She also talked about in that first session what she wants to do, which is this stuff around delaying. And I think, uh, although I didn't hear much about the what happened in the second session regarding delaying, I think it's a nice tactic because while I'm delaying, or it really depends on how we delay, if I'm delaying and then I'm counting down the minutes before I can do my ritual, that's not going to be helpful. What we want to be able to do around delaying is I'm creating an opportunity for me between now and then to handle feeling uncertain and distressed. And I have an end point. And by having an endpoint, I allow myself to do this kind of practice. I think if you want to begin to learn to control a circumstance, 
if you can shrink down the time you have to be in control of it, it's going to be easier for you. So I think the, the delay tactic, although it won't finish the work, it certainly gives people an opportunity to get better oriented around the protocol, which is, I got this and I can handle this. Yes, I totally agree. I think all of those are really great topics and they're important concepts from my perspective too. So why don't we just slow down a little bit and go back to normalization and surrender? I know a lot of people wonder if surrender means giving up and just, I think, starting with (laughs) Is it true that when you're really, really anxious or you're having intrusive thoughts, that it is actually normal to be having those thoughts, feelings, and sensations? And how do people know whether or not their thoughts are normal? Oh, well, you're asking a lot of questions within that double question. So maybe we need to postpone a little bit about how they know whether or not the thoughts and feelings are normal, because that's when I start talking about signals versus noise, how to decide that. So other than that, you want to know what? Why is it worth it to surrender or what what does it mean to surrender to your thoughts and feelings? Yeah. And surrender is not a term I use, but I'm fine around you using it. How I think about it is, you know, that first fearful thought and, and response to it, they're unconsciously mediated. And so for me to think about trying to control consciously something that rises up from the unconscious is way too high of an expectation. It's nobody can do that. No one. I can't do it. You can't do it. They can't do it. Where we need to pay attention to is what do I do next? How do I respond to what is popping up? And again, what is popping up is going to be, depending on what the problem is, is the fearful thought or image or impulse, and then my initial reaction to it, which is often, you know, I can't take that. Oh, no, there it is again. Uh-oh. You know, my hands go up and kind of a protective movement and or action. And then what I want to be able to do at that point is step back and go, oh, it's happening. <laughs> or, oh, oh, I'm doing it, right? And as soon as we step back from that, we've put that little wedge of time in there that gives us a chance to reorient it to another strategy besides that. Even if we can't, learning to step back in that moment that you're talking about and going, you know, of course, of course, this is showing up as opposed to this shouldn't be showing up. What am I doing wrong? And with that, of course, some people seem to make the judgment of like, of course, this is here and it's meaningful. So how do you shift from, of course, this is here, it means something to, of course, this is here and and I can use a strategy to relate to it more effectively? Right. And of course, that is exactly the question that gets people into trouble, which is, this or or this attribute of this is meaningful. And so this is when I'm trying to work with people in the session around signal versus noise. I need to decide ahead of time what my theme is that I am facing and whether or not if XYZ thought comes up, I'm going to faint or humiliate myself or die or whatever it may be, 
I need to have decided ahead of time, am I going to treat that as important or not? If it's noise, then I know what to do, which is in the moment, I'm going to operate as though it's nothing. And in other words, act as though, take actions as though it's nothing. Because in the moment, I can't figure it out. I can't really know whether it is something serious or not. If I'm ambivalent around it being serious or not serious, I'm going to err on the side of it's serious. And so if it's nothing, I don't have to do anything. But if it's serious, I've got to stop it, take action, protect myself, whatever it may be. And so we can't let the part of us that is feeling victimized by these thoughts and feelings be in charge at that moment. They need to be following the guidelines. That's why we talked a little bit about the rules that we have. So that's really important. You know, one is to figure out what is a signal, something I have to do something about, noise, it's nothing. Figure that out ahead of time and then operationalize that in the moment because it's too much otherwise. Do you feel differently or how do you talk about that? Yeah, no, I think that was a really great description. And I think when I'm looking for when people, because I use pretty similar language to frame it up in the first place, I think I'm always thinking about when people are stuck, why are they stuck? And so the two things that tend to come up from my perspective, which I think Sophie and I also discussed, is sometimes it's getting caught in content where on some level people know that they have OCD or they have an anxiety disorder and they have some sense of like these are the types of triggers that tend to bother me either externally or internally but like somehow for some reason this time it seems different is where people get caught and the, yep. or they might still be like I know that this is my OCD and also if I don't do something to make this go away I'm going to be anxious all day it could become something bigger why don't I just do something really fast to make it go away right and let me just reinforce what you're saying because this is such a manipulative disorder if we're talking specifically about OCD because it will say exactly what you're saying which is I can handle it now but if I don't settle it now I'm going to be preoccupied all day tomorrow with it I need to go ahead and get it over with to get it off my plate and so that's one hook trying to as soon as you start lifting your eyes up into the future the future is typically controlled by the disorder so we want to understand if i get future oriented i'm probably sunk at that point i need to stay in the present moment what do i need to do right at this moment. And, and if I so, can just interrupt you Yeah, let me second. say one more thing and then you can interrupt um, or you won't be interrupting because I will have said whatever else I want to say is the other hook that tends to go with that is this is only going to take a little bit to get me to settle this. I, the compulsion is only going to take 10 minutes, you know, and then four hours later they go, okay, well, I was wrong about that. So go ahead, interrupt. Sure. Yeah. I was just going to say, I frame that as anticipatory anxiety. So people might be familiar with what I'm saying is as soon as anticipatory anxiety gets involved, then you have a new problem. So I think what you're just saying, as soon as the future gets involved, then and you're so going to you, have trouble. Right. And you're familiar with the other corollary to that, which is, oh, it's only going to take me a little bit to do my compulsion and then I'll be out of there. And so I can, you know, I'm doing this all the time. Oh, well then I'll be done. And it's, it happens over and over and over again. It's like you discover that it's not true. 
that you're, it's only going to take a little bit, but then you do it again as though it's only going to take a little bit. So there is a, a wheel that keeps spinning around that they need to identify and then intervene about. Yeah, and I agree. Not only can it sometimes be something that they you're thinking is only going to take a small amount of time and then it takes a longer amount of time, but also just like little checks throughout the day. So texting someone, looking at a picture, checking Instagram, checking emails that seem like maybe the person either in their mind or two other people convinces themselves that it's no big deal or you know they're not doing it because of anxiety. But those things make your mind, I guess, more vulnerable to getting stuck on something bigger at another time. And are you talking about little reassurances all day? Is that what you mean when you say that? Yeah. So if we go back to the case of for Sophie in particular, so she would say most of the time she's not really, really stuck on a certain trigger. But if there, if she has an intrusive thought about potentially being contaminated in some way, she might wash for like one extra time, or she might text a family member or her boyfriend, just confirming that the situation wasn't dangerous or something like that. She and other people will sometimes timestamp through texting. So I'm just going to tell someone what I'm doing so that they know what I'm doing. So we know later that I didn't harm anyone, you know, something like that, that can actually to the other person seem like a normal, non-compulsive way to check in, but actually sneaks in as a compulsion. Right. And I think another reason they do it is, or for some of that, is to go, well, and this happens in, in sessions with people all the time where I just have to hold my head still sometimes because they will run out a story, you know, well, I was merging into the traffic and I didn't really hear anything, but I felt something and I kept going and they're looking for me to not my head in agreement or have you know a furrowed brow like uh oh so they do these very subtle ways to get you to confirm with them that they did it properly and so i think maybe for sometimes when they're sending these text messages and so forth the position is well i'm going to explain this and then if they think that's not good enough, they'll write me back and have a question about it. And so I'm not in it myself. And that is a reassurance ritual in some way. Yeah. And so what's the problem with that from your perspective? Well, I am not sitting with the uncertainty. And I have to sit with the uncertainty. I'm trying to get certainty, trying to get closure. And, you know, how long is the feeling going to last? How long is, you know, it all of all of that is let me get closure and have this behind me. Yes. Okay. So let's, I think people are really going to identify with what we just talked about. So let's transition into what they can do. If they do understand at least some of the time that the problem is uncertainty and tolerating uncertainty is the goal, then say more about guidelines or how you frame a strategy that helps someone tolerate uncertainty more effectively. Okay. Well, let me point out a couple of things around what Sophie's doing related to this is, you know, the first thing I heard that I wrote down in that first interview is she's trying to make the feeling stop. And so, you know, this framework of if I can be a good enough client, then I'll get these feelings to go away. That's my objective. Now, of course, you know, people seek help and treatment and group support and so forth in order to have this stuff not be so intrusive for them, but the outcome that we want and the procedure that we need to take tend to be opposite. 
because and so you know part of what i want people to understand is as they begin as we explain the protocol to them and and they i want them to be on board with the protocol i want them to metabolize it i want it to be their own so that's part of it and then once it's there i would like them to take a stance of you know kind of again lock it down which is I don't care how many intrusive thoughts I have. I don't care about the urges that come up. I'm going to respond in this way. I don't care if this lasts the rest of my life. This is how I'm going to manage it. We're not saying this is like type 1 diabetes. You're going to have this the rest of your life, and you must constantly manage it like that. It is an attitude, a stance that I take. and so. That's, you know, to me, great deal of what I do with people has to do with attitude. My orientation with my relationship with the disorder. So that's part of it. You're wanting to know specifically about OCD in terms of, so I'm going to take a right turn or left turn, depending on your politics, regarding exposure and response prevention. And I think what you typically do, rightly so, is act acceptance and commitment therapy. And what Sophie's talking about, which is I accept these feelings. I'm willing to, willing to have these feelings. And I, as an alternative to that, not like better than that, but just different than that, I am helping people get an orientation of aggression, which is I'm not accepting this experience. I want this experience. And I do the best I can to help people understand, because if they don't understand, they won't do it, understand why I would be taking on that position of wanting it. I want it because I need to have it. <laughs> I need to have the provoking event. I need to feel doubt. I need to have that kind of worry show up in order to modify my response. So if I need it, I'm going to take it the next step, which is, you know, I need it. I'm going to comply with the request my therapists have or whatever it is over to a kind of ownership. No, wait a minute. If I need it, I want it. So let's go. So Sophie, for instance, hypothetically, as she checks in, which she does, you know, at times when she checks in and notices this stuff to go you know, and to find out she's having those kinds of fears for her to have a response, pardon this expression, but great, great, here it is, great. Why is it great? Well, great is totally opposite of, oh my God, right? To me, yes, neutrality can be perceived as opposite of a dramatic negative reaction, but where I think about is that the dramatic negative reaction is emotional. It is fear. And to go from fear to neutrality is difficult. If I can think about, I want to have an, an emotional response to this event that comes on top of my fearful response, not removing my fearful response, not removing my oh no, but adding to it a secondary message that comes over top of it, which is, oh yes, good, great, this is my opportunity. And then that's that kind of stepping into an aggressive stance. The disorder has taken territory from me. I do not have 
chunks of my life available to me anymore because the disorder has taken it over, whether it's asbestos or driving poorly or whatever it may be. I need to go get my life back, and that means I need to step into the territory of uncertainty. That uncertainty is how the game is played, not uncertainty about something specific. If I keep going back to uncertainty about something specific, I'm playing the disorders game. I have to elevate the game up to, no, I'm taking on. I'm taking on the disorder. The disorder has nothing to do with the topic. Nothing. It just found, you know, for personifying, it just found the topic that works against me. And so if I stay down there with any reassurance and so forth about the topic itself, then I'm just going to spin my wheels over and over again. So I'm going to take a breath here just to say, you know, as you're saying what strategies are, that's the overriding strategy that everything else falls underneath, whether it's postponing and so forth. So, Yes. And so I have a follow-up question there. I think the way that I often describe it is the moment that you have an intrusive thought or another strong feeling of anxiety and uh, yeah, a thought you don't like, then great here's my opportunity. Now we're going towards trying to accept it. Would you say at that moment that you have to provoke it even more? And my follow-up question to that is that- Wait, don't do another follow-up question. Hold on to the follow-up question. Okay, so you're saying, great, now I move to acceptance. Yes, of course, but yeah, I'm just going to step away from that tangle And again, I would say it's simultaneous with I'm afraid. Those two are going on at the same moment. That gets a little confusing for people, but it's not like I'm going to say, great, and now I've stepped away and I'm no longer experiencing that other thought or feeling that I don't want. These are going on at the same time. So, you know, that synergy is what's required. We're trying to mix that. We're trying to build a new neural pathway right next to my fearful response that is saying to my amygdala, oh, just kidding. I'm fine with this. I want this. You don't have to juice me up so much. And that's really what we're trying to do is to get at neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's what we want to accomplish. That's why when it shows up, you have to generate in order to modify that. So I want to generate the experience in order to modify it. So your follow-up question was? Yes. My follow-up question was some people get stuck right at this spot. So they go, great, this is my opportunity. I want to go towards. And then as they're going towards, either trying to make it worse or allowing whatever they're experiencing, then they start checking. Am I doing it right? Should I be more anxious? Should I be less anxious? What does that mean about what's happening? So I'm wondering if you can comment on that secondary process. Okay, those are two different things, I think. First is, I want to make it stronger. I'm going to introduce more thoughts and so forth. And in my work, I don't do that. And that is distinct from, I think, what happens in exposure is that I don't ask people pretty much ever to increase the thoughts and feelings that are causing them distress and then sit with it. I would rather, if at all possible, to have this be a naturalistic exposure. So I want to go 
toward the things that I'm avoiding in order to provoke those things. So I want to bring myself into the circumstance that would, has in the past provoked these thoughts and feelings, but I'm not provoking the thought and feeling on purpose myself. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to see what happens. And I also don't care about how strong the feeling gets. I don't encourage people to make the anxiety stronger or the the thoughts stronger. I turn that over to the disorder, basically. I'm going to go into this circumstance and in essence go, you know, have at me because here we are and I'm ready. Let's get going. So, you know, that kind of leads into, I won't talk about it now necessarily, but leads into not only am I talking to myself, I need to step forward, let me keep going, but I can make comments or talk to the disorder itself, you know, go ahead, you know, make my heart beat faster. And then once I say that, again, it's a provoking thing to say, I'm done with that transaction and I turn away to whatever task I was involved with, knowing that eight seconds later, I may get provoked again. I don't really care. I think that's part of what we do around thinking about scoring points. You score point moment by moment. So when people complain to us like, oh, well, I tried that, but it didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? Well, it came right back. So, I mean, so (laughs) if it comes right back, great. Another opportunity to score a point is that kind of stance to take because that is going to give you some insulation. So Yes, and so that I think is a really nice time to transition into what you were saying before about guidelines, about delay, and I think the larger topic is committing effectively to manageable steps. If someone's looking to make commitments outside of therapy to practice relating in this new way to their anxiety, how do they go about thinking through the, a good way to do that homework? Sure. And I'm going to do that with them. What I often say to the therapists that we're doing training is orient the session in such a way that at the end of the session, the two of you can collaborate around what I'm a cognitive therapist, so it's going to be what behavioral experiments they can do, not exposures, but behavioral experiments they can do that will generate some degree of uncertainty and or distress regarding their themes. And so especially early on, I don't care at all about how much uncertainty they feel, how much distress they feel, just that they intentionally go get the uncertainty. And I think that that higher level purpose is, it's hard for them to understand that sometime, which is, it's not, I'm going to go in here and do whatever, but I'm going to go in here in order to literally have a sense of doubt. That's, and they all know what that feels like, but I got to go get that uncertainty, not go into the circumstance to prove everything is fine, I can handle it. I got to go get that. And I got to go get the uncomfortable sensation of distress on purpose. That's what I'm doing. And I need to linger in that if it remains. And that's all. It's like it just, you go into the circumstance 
if you don't get any uncertainty, then you can just check that box and say, well, I've accomplished this one. I got to go up one level of practice. What can I do next time? Because I thought I was going to have trouble and I'm not having trouble. I'll be glad to give myself some laurels where I'm not going to rest on my laurels. What do I need to do next? Because I need to, I want to, not I, you know, not just I need to, I want to go to the next level in order to generate some more of these feelings that I hate. Let's not not forget I've got a I don't want I don't want to have those feelings. I don't want to be scared like that. I don't want to not know that there is safety. I hate that. That state of mind is not going away. We got to understand that. It's like, okay, I totally get that. All everybody knows what that's like to not want to do something and then to want to do it at the same time. You just can't keep those positions parallel because you'll just argue with yourself. You have to elevate that position of I get it and I'm going going forward. Yeah, I think it's a really great point because a lot of times people think if they simultaneously have the thought, I don't want to be doing this, then they're doing treatment wrong in some way or that their attitude hasn't shifted enough. But the new way of thinking about it is that you can have both attitudes at the same time. Yeah. And that gets, you know, that, that self-compassion that you talk about is kind of connected with that too. I can, you know, if I do back away when I thought I was going to step forward, then I have to live to fight another day and I have to be okay with myself for having done that, but let's get going again. Yeah. And I just want to add that the way that I think about self-compassion is seeing my own suffering as a pattern. So rather than needing to find a way to get myself to believe certain warm and fuzzy things about myself as a way to get to self-compassion, if I just think about my own process as a pattern, and at different times I'm getting tricked either by content or by biological process, but any time that I see what happens for what it is and then strive to do something differently, that's progress in and of itself. And then a compassionate way to think about one's own process is that you can just keep, basically anything is data and you can always keep trying. Yeah. And also, you know, they talk about this in sports all the time. You go to the foul line and you miss the foul shot. You can be like so upset with yourself, but you know, next play, next shot. You got you got that reaction. Okay, fine. Now sweep that away. There's something to learn about that. Oh, I didn't actually have enough arc. That's one thing. You can certainly analyze how things went bad for yourself, but then next shot, next practice. Let's get going. And just a second point I would just make, because you've alluded to this with Sophie in, in general, which is, am I doing it properly? Am I doing the protocol properly? What am I looking for as measurements of doing the protocol properly? What is success? You know, to me, how I talk about it is, are you following the steps of the protocol? That's success. Don't measure it by the outcome in that moment. Just keep moving forward with this protocol. If you feel like you question the protocol, that's why we come back in and talk about it. And, you know, I try to either persuade you that the protocol is the right one to use, or we modify the protocol to make it easier for you to keep going forward using the protocol. And, I, you know, I use the term protocol, which is diff- can be different from for each person, but you and I are talking about in general what 
that is, going toward what I don't want to go toward, handling the sensations, having a change in attitude, being more aggressive. All those things matter to me more than let's create a hierarchy and let's start about midway on the hierarchy and work our way up. I, there's, no, there's not a problem with that, but to me, or at least how I work, be subsumed under here's my intention. And let me just try to fulfill my intention. You know, we really get up, we can get up as high a level of abstraction as possible, then that level of abstraction will, can be used for all these discrete moments. So if we can get up there to go, I'm going toward what I don't want to go toward, you know, I'm going to welcome what I don't want to welcome, that's a pretty high level of abstraction. And then, you know, when I'm about to face something else, I go, oh, God, what am I going to do here? Oh, welcome what I don't want to welcome. Oh, I totally get that. And I know what I don't want to welcome here. Shall I practice this now? You know, you don't, you don't have to practice all the time. If you don't want to practice, don't practice. And, I mean, that's the other message I give to people is like, only do what you want to do. Only do what you want to do. If you don't want to practice, don't practice. If you don't want to be in treatment, don't be in treatment. If you don't want to fly, don't fly. The corollary is if you want to get stronger, you have to want to do what you need to do. You have to want to do what's standing in your way. Totally agree with everything you're saying. The one thing I want to add to that you mentioned before, and I just want to reinforce right now, is and stay in the present moment. And staying in the present moment isn't just watching your breath, but rather as you're trying to do the protocol, if your mind says, how do I know I'm going to be able to do this three days from now or what have you, that's the opposite of the basketball player that's saying, you know, I missed the shot. I'm going to the next play, that person is not going to, how do I know that I'm gonna, not going to miss every shot from here on out? And it's important that you, that's one big reason to stay in the present moment is the only way that you have a good shot at the next moment is if you stay with that moment. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the reason we do acceptance of the present moment is because the present moment is already here. And so if I'm going to resist the present moment, I'm chewing up my working memory. I can only hold on to four chunks of information at any one moment. If I start using up my chunks of information by going, oh, no, here it is. I hate this. I don't want this. Then I don't have much skill set left. You know, it's, if we just think about somebody with social anxiety, it's what happens if they start going internal and going, oh, my gosh. Am I going to remember what to say next? Then it manifests as them being clumsy and awkward and not remembering what comes next. So that's so the resistance to the present moment is critically important to address because it's already here. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Anything else coming to mind before we close for today? Not until we close and I'll think about six other things. <laughs> okay. That sounds great. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Reed right. Wilson. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.